What's going on, everybody? You are listening to Markets Made Simple with Afik Tori. Today, we are going to be discussing the Silicon Valley Bank collapse. There's a lot to unravel in this story. You can look at it from an accounting perspective, a banking crisis perspective, what it's going to do to the economy, what exactly happened on the balance sheet of Silicon Valley Bank, why didn't they hedge their risk properly, and what exactly is a bank run. So we're going to get into all that today. And of course, as usual, we are going to try and simplify things. So let's get into it. So before we get into understanding what exactly happened with Silicon Valley Bank, we first of all need to understand how does a bank work? And specifically, how does a bank make money? What is their business model exactly? Before that, I want to simplify the banking business model a little bit by comparing it to a relatively simple business model. Let's take a factory, for example. What does a factory do essentially? Let's say you have a company and you have a factory and you borrow money from the bank or from shareholders and you invest in a factory and you make, let's say, cars and you sell the cars, you make profit, you pay back your loans, you pay back your shareholders via dividends, whatever it may be. That's how a regular factory works. So let's try to compare a bank to a factory. What does a bank do? How does a bank raise money to make money? A bank has two ways to raise money to make money. You can either sell shares like any other company, can sell shares privately, publicly, that's how it raises capital, and then they have capital to invest in whatever they want to invest in, or they can take depositor money. Now, this may sound a bit strange in the beginning, but once you start thinking about it, whenever you deposit money in a bank, you are creating an agreement with the bank that basically says that the bank owes you back this money. So in terms of a corporate balance sheet, this is a liability for the bank. It's not an asset. It's a liability for the bank. They owe you this money back. Now, what does the bank do with the money that they have raised? via depositors, loans, equity, etc. What do they do with this money? So they have many activities. One of the most known activities is loans, right? They lend out their money to people, whether it be car loans, mortgages, all-purpose loans, whatever it may be. Another way for them to make money is to deposit money at the Federal Reserve. There is some regulation behind that. We'll get into that a little bit later. But banks can deposit money at the Federal Reserve and they can accrue interest on the money they have deposited at the Federal Reserve. Kind of like how we have money deposited at banks and we get interest on our deposits. So banks can deposit at their local central bank. In the United States, it's the Federal Reserve, so they can deposit money at the Federal Reserve and receive interest on their deposits. Let's focus on one specific way that banks have to make money, and that's investing it in the financial markets. So this is kind of related to the loan business that banks can get involved in, but banks can own all types of loans. Actually, regulation deems it necessary for banks to hold specific types of loans on their balance sheet or on their books, or basically in very simple terms, in their treasury. We will get into that a little bit later, but banks can invest in treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, which is a fancy word for mortgages, and other types of loans that take on very, very fancy acronyms like ABS, CMBS, and all other types of acronyms that really just is a very, very fancy word for a specific type of loan. Now, you may be thinking, okay, how can a bank borrow money from depositors, or basically another way to put it could be owe money that all depositors put in their accounts. At the same time, they go ahead and they commit to a 30-year mortgage, 20-year mortgage, 10-year mortgage, etc. So let's start beginning to 
to talk right now about what's called risk management of the bank. And not only that, but liability management. Every bank needs to be able to manage these two liabilities and risks in order to make sure that if a client or if a depositor ever wants their money back, then they can have it. Obviously, if all the clients want their money back at the same time, that's not going to happen. The bank is going to experience what's called a bank run. And the Federal Reserve has certain regulation in place for that not to happen or reduce the chance as much as possible for that kind of thing to happen. At the end of the day, it's psychology. If all customers want their money because they're scared of something, they're going to go ahead and request their money back. And then the bank run is going to happen inevitably. It doesn't matter who is going to guarantee what that is going to happen. So now that we understand how banks make money, let's analyze how a specific bank chose to make money within this industry, specifically Silicon Valley Bank. So firstly, what's important to understand about Silicon Valley Bank is, as its name suggests, it tailored to the tech industry and a specific niche within the tech industry called venture capitalists. Venture capitalists is a very, very fancy and overglorified term for people who invest in early stage companies. That's what they do. Now, Silicon Valley Bank has actually made a very commendable penetration into this industry so deep that they would actually bank the tech companies themselves as well as the CEOs and entrepreneurs behind the tech companies of which were banking with them as well. Whenever they penetrated into this market, they started with the tech companies in which venture capitalist firms would invest into, but they got so deeply penetrated into this industry that they started also doing personal banking for high wealth individuals coming from this industry. And they were very successful in the past few decades. Important to know. Now, you might remember that two years back, the coronavirus pandemic actually boosted tech and especially in the financial market sense. There was easy money, interest rates were very, very low, sentiment was very, very high after the first initial bust of the financial stock markets, and tech was doing very, very well from a valuation perspective. So what happened to Silicon Valley Bank? Silicon Valley Bank received many deposits. There was a lot of money coming in, and they had a lot more deposits coming into their bank, which means they had a lot more liabilities. Yes, they had a lot more cash to balance that out, but they had a lot more money right now to play with and a lot more potential to perform better on their balance sheet and make themselves more profit. So that was going very, very good for them. Question is, what were they doing with the money? This is where it gets interesting. So just to give you a bit of perspective of how much money was coming into Silicon Valley Bank, around double or triple the deposits from 2019-2020 up until today. So about two, three years ago, they had about 60 to $80 billion worth of deposits. And just recently, before last week, they had a bit over $200 billion, I think $220 billion approximately. So that's, depending on the year and the amount of where you start counting, it's, it's between 200 to 300% increase in deposits over the past couple of years, which is a tremendous, tremendous growth rate. Very commendable. The problem comes in where Silicon Valley Bank didn't manage their liabilities as they should, meaning they didn't account for a dry up in the depository environment, which means they didn't account for perhaps one day that their clients wouldn't come as they did in the past couple of years to simply deposit a lot of money into their accounts and have a lot more capital available for Silicon Valley Bank to resume operations. And because they didn't account for that, they invested in long-term bonds. Now, investing in long-term bonds is not an issue. Actually, it's very smart because the longer you invest generally, the more yield you can make. You can make more money if you if you lock in your money 
money for a longer period of time. And as interest rates were very, very low, they didn't have much of a choice. So they locked in their money for a longer period of time with these loans. The problem is that if you lock in a lot of your money for a long period of time, and you would have a situation where your clients need that money back, in other words, you would need to service your liabilities, then you can get into a lot of trouble because you might not have enough money to service all the liabilities. But then you might say, okay, but that's not really an issue because you can always sell the assets, right? You can always sell whatever loans you have on your portfolio, and then you can give the money to your depositors, and then everybody's happy. This is where the issue came in. Essentially, what happened to their bond portfolio when interest rates went up is first and foremost, the value of their portfolio went down. So if they had to sell their securities at that time, they would sell them at a loss. And if you started off with 100, you invested in something and you waited for 10 years for that 100 to come back with some interest. But in the meantime, the value of your asset went down and you have to sell it, you're not going to realize that 100 anymore at the end, you're going to get let's say 70 or 80 cents on the dollar. So you're going to lose a lot of money in that process. So Silicon Valley Bank never intended to sell the these bonds because they probably assumed that deposits would keep coming from the tech sector. They never wanted to realize these losses, but what they didn't understand was that interest rates would hit the tech sector as well as their bond portfolio. So it's not a problem to have intermittent losses on a bond portfolio if you intend to hold the bond to maturity. It's kind of like owning real estate. If you buy an apartment and you plan to keep it forever, or let's say for 30 years until you have to pass it on to somebody else, if it goes up or down in the time before you have to pass it on, then it doesn't really matter, right? Because you're going to hold it anyway till the end. You can think of that kind of like a bond portfolio because in a bond portfolio, you get the money that you're owed at the end usually. You get intermittent coupon payments, yes, but you're always going to get whatever is promised to you if you invest in a bond or again, a bond is a fancy word for a loan. So you're always going to get that money back. It doesn't matter if the value of your bond goes down or up in the intermittent. If you hold the bond to maturity, you will always get that money. So this was the first thing that Silicon Valley Bank made a mistake with. I don't believe they made a mistake. I simply believe they overlooked uh, this possibility that the interest rates can really hit their business model extremely hard. Now you might say, okay, so how is this different from any other bank, right? Any other bank can lose money or declare unrealized losses in the intermittent phase of their bond portfolio. So why did Silicon Valley Bank crash and other banks didn't? Well, other banks are a little bit different than Silicon Valley Bank. First of all, big banks are required to report to the Federal Reserve how much of their capital they have invested in bonds and how much of their capital they have put aside in the Federal Reserve. So after 2008, the financial crisis, the Federal Reserve has a very, very close relationship with banks in terms of understanding if a crisis hits or if a bank run happens on their bank, will they have enough money to serve their depositors? Because at the end of the day, if you invest in a company or you take a loan and you lend money to a company and that company goes bust, then fine, you took the risk, you should lose the money. But if you're simply depositing money at a bank, and you're a normal citizen and you don't assume any risk and the government is meant to protect you, then the government needs to understand that banks operating in the banking sector to serve the people are keeping the people safe in their activities. So big banks have to abide by regulation. They have to abide by regulation to keep a certain amount of their capital deposited at the Federal Reserve and also abide by having a certain amount of their capital in what's called safe liquid assets, which include mortgage-backed securities, or again, fancy word for mortgages, treasuries, which is a fancy word for a loan given by the government. And above all that, they're also subject to what's called stress tests. Now, stress tests a very, very fancy way to say, we are going to test your bank in a given scenario. So if I was doing a stress test 
for anybody's portfolio, I can say, okay, if interest rates go this way, what's going to happen to your portfolio? If the US dollar will go that way, what is going to happen to your portfolio? This is a stress test. You simulate any type of situation or a combination of situations, and then you declare what's going to happen to that entity of which you are subjecting that stress test. So the Federal Reserve have periodic times where they would administer stress tests onto banks, and they are responsible for regulating them. So you might ask, how does a bank pass these stress tests if the majority of their capital is invested in bonds? Well, they have something that they do is called hedging interest rate risks. Hedging is another very, very fancy term for eliminating. Whenever you hedge a certain risk, you eliminate that risk. The primary tool in which you eliminate interest rate risk is through a derivative contract called interest rate swaps. If there's enough demand, I'd be more than happy to explain in detail what an interest rate swap is, but you can think of it as just a piece of paper that increases in value if interest rates were to go up. So that's how banks would account or hedge for the interest rate risk, which they anticipate they will come across. So then you might ask, okay, so how about I just buy a bunch of bonds and then I invest in interest rate swaps and then I'll make money and I'll have no risk. Like, what's the problem? Well, like anything in finance, if you neutralize risk of something, then you're essentially giving up upside of anything. So again, you would have to understand how interest rate swaps work down to the mechanism. But you can take it from me that if interest rates were to go up, you would make much more money on the swap than you would lose on the bond portfolio, assuming that you bought the right amount. So this is just one way to hedge interest rate risk. You can also do it via options. But this is a very, very classic way that bonds go ahead and hedge the interest rate risk that is facing their bond portfolio. Now, Silicon Valley Bank was engaged in interest rate swaps to hedge. According to their balance sheet printed two years ago, not quite enough to hedge all the interest rate risk, but some of it. But the very weird thing that happened in 2022 that we can see from their balance sheet was that they took off these hedges and that was considered irresponsible. So they have a bunch of bonds that are decreasing in value. Money is not flowing in as it did before. And they're very exposed because if their clients want their money back, they have to sell these bonds, realize the loss, and then lose money, essentially. Because again, remember, if the value of something goes down, you never lost money on it if you don't sell. So they have to realize that loss and give the money back to their depositors that wish to withdraw. This is exactly what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. They got into a situation where their customers found out of their vulnerability. And as you know, when a panic starts, it's very, very hard to compose and to control. So this turned into a bank run. And many more clients wanted their money back than they could have granted without selling too much of their bond portfolio. And they also had to increase money in the bond market, meaning sell loans in order to raise money. So at that point, people started to understand that the bank was in trouble. Everybody wanted their money bank and then the bank run happened. Now, this only happened whenever they declared that they had to raise money in order to keep the bank afloat. So you might ask yourself, how come nobody saw this? How did nobody know that the bank was completely unhedged in terms of interest rate risk? And interest rates have been going up for a while. It's not a new thing. So how can this all be news? In order to understand that, we do need to dip into the accounting practices of Silicon Valley Bank. I'm going to try and keep this as simple as possible, but it is very, very important to understand how nobody saw this coming. So let's get into it. The problem 
with accounting sometimes is that it's not always transparent. Even though it intends to be, it's not always transparent. And the way that you can classify bonds in your accounting balance sheet depends on whether you intend to hold the bond to maturity or whether you are intending to sell them within a year. I'm not going to get into accounting and the philosophy behind accounting too much right now, but essentially you have two options. If you intend to hold these bonds to maturity, the bonds can sit in what's called an HTM account or hold to maturity account. The value of the bonds within an HTM account is going to be recorded according to what's called amortized cost. Amortized cost is a fancy word for how much the bond cost you and all the associated costs around purchasing that bond. So lawyer fees, banker fees, etc. An AFS account or available for sale account would require you to what's called mark to market or very fancy term for continuously recording and updating the value of those bonds as you go along. Now, you might already start to understand that Silicon Valley Bank had these bonds under the HTM account, and that's why the unrealized losses did not show up in their balance sheet, even though they had to sell them in order to grant withdrawals to their depositors. If these bonds were held in an AFS account, then the unrealized gains or losses, in this case it was losses, would reflect on their balance sheet, and their value would have come down before this big crash. And you can say, okay, if Silicon Valley Bank complied with accounting rules and there was no foul play here. That may be true, but Silicon Valley Bank should definitely have hedged their interest rate risk, amongst other things, perhaps maybe diversify their clientele base a little bit so that whenever one sector is going down, the bank doesn't go down with it. There's many ways you can dissect this story and try to point a finger at whoever is you think is responsible. So quick update. How has the Federal Reserve or another entity called the FDIC has controlled or contained this to prevent future contagion to other banks and other sector in the economy. So the very first thing that the Fed and the FDIC have done is to guarantee all depositors. Usually the FDIC only guarantees up to $250,000 per depositor, but the Fed and the FDIC both decided that this crisis can become a huge contagion. They didn't want to take any risk. They said, you know what, first of all, all depositors are going to be guaranteed. Everybody's going to get their money back. That's the first thing that they did. The next thing is that they're trying to find a buyer to buy whatever is left of Silicon Valley Bank. That doesn't mean that the bank will be bailed out. It just means that they're trying to get some money injected into Silicon Valley Bank to probably lessen the burden on themselves to pay back depositors. They may try to sweeten the deal to whoever might be the potential buyer of a Silicon Valley Bank, but we will have to wait and see. There's no news of that up until now. The next thing that the Federal Reserve did was address a huge risk called a possible bank run on other banks, simply due to the psychological effect of depositors and the fact that they may be scared for their deposits, which which is pretty acceptable, right? I mean, if you see this going on in a bank, you do not want to be the person that's saying, you know what, guys, if we all just keep the money in the banks and this will not happen, whoever's going to get their money out is going to be literally safe. So people have this effect of trying to get first, and that's what creates a bank run. So what the Fed has done also is offer loans to banks to satisfy short-term funding needs. For example, if a bank doesn't have enough cash to guarantee a certain amount of deposits, or if they simply need cash to service something and withdrawals are preventing that to happen, what they can do is they can borrow money from the Federal Reserve with their current bond portfolio as collateral for that loan. How does this help banks? 
it offers a way to create liquidity or a fancy word for to raise capital or raise cash to satisfy short-term obligations, even if they have long-term assets, which they don't want to liquidate right now because they would have to realize a loss. So as long as the Federal Reserve has confidence in these assets, these bonds, and they know that the banks will have the money eventually, they will give the banks these loans to satisfy any short-term liquidity issues. And of course, the other major thing that they did is they will begin introducing most probably new regulation for mid-sized banks. We need to understand why Silicon Valley Bank did not come up on the Federal Reserve's radar. Whenever they administer the stress tests, how come Silicon Valley Bank have passed if they didn't have proper interest rate hedges in place while being completely concentrated in a specific clientele base? How could they have passed the test? Well, Silicon Valley Bank did not pass the threshold in terms of size in order to be scrutinized by the Federal Reserve Bank. Their total assets summed up to $220 billion right before its crash, and the threshold is $250 billion, so just shy of the regulatory threshold for the Federal Reserve to give them any attention. So that's the big story with Silicon Valley Bank, and you might start seeing additional banks collapse this week, next week, in the short term as well. Signature Bank is on a lot of problems right now. Also, just this morning, at the time of my recording, Wednesday morning, Credit Suisse is beginning to show some fragilities, so we might see this trend continue. All in all, this is a very interesting story. It's very sad that it's happening. We never want to see a bank go into some sort of crisis like this. We never want to see depositors stressed out that they might not get their money back. And we just don't want to batter the economy. This is going to create job losses. It's going to create a recession, possibly. But we need to always be weary about how this is going to affect us as investors. So let's remind ourselves about the investing environment that we are dealing with up until now. And let's see how this is going to affect our decisions as investors. Let's get into it. Let's go back in time before anybody even knew about Silicon Valley's banks' fragilities. And we were looking at a Federal Reserve, which was probably going to increase the next interest rate hike by either 50 basis points or 25 basis points. That's where we were last week. Yesterday and today, we've received a slew of fresh printed economic data report. The consumer price index came in at expected 6% year over year and the month over month of 0.4%. The interesting part of the economic data that we've been receiving for the past couple of days is in the retail sales and the PPI, or the producer price index. The expectation for the producer price index came in significantly lower than expected. We expected a year-over-year increase of 5.4%, and we received an year-over-year increase of 4.6%. Month-over-month increase was anticipated at 0.3%, and the month-over-month actually dropped by 0.1%. Retail sales went down month-over-month by 0.4%, with an anticipated 0.3% drop. So the economic data shows more bearishness than expected. What did that do exactly to the expectations of what the Federal Reserve is going to do next? Well, first of all, what did Silicon Valley Bank's news mean for the Federal Reserve? Again, the Federal Reserve is reacting to incoming data. We must be able to assume that incoming data is also classified as fresh new events. So Silicon Valley Bank's crisis 
actually soothed expectations about higher interest rates. And this economic data has also soothed expectations for the size of the next interest rate hike, which means right now, as we currently stand in the financial markets, interest rates are expected to move up either by 0% or 25 basis points. The 50 basis point option is no longer on the table. This is why in recent days, we've seen a tremendous appreciation of treasuries. As you know, treasuries go up whenever interest rates go down, just like we've discussed on the Silicon Valley Bank's bond portfolio. They have that inverse relationship. We have not seen an increase in stock market portfolios. And I want to discuss a little bit why. In a time of fear, stock markets do not rally. Bond markets rally, according to history. And one way that we can prove that these events in the past couple of days have induced fear into investors is by looking at the VIX index. The VIX index, through its construction, which again, if there's enough demand or if you want, you can private message me and I can explain to you how the VIX is actually constructed. It measures volatility within the market, which essentially is a derivative of fear. And that has increased dramatically over the past week for obvious reasons. A small disclaimer, guys, I am not a professional financial advisor. I'm not a professional investment advisor. So please do not invest solely based on what you hear on this podcast or on this specific episode. This is simply an educational episode, an educational podcast for you guys to take back, learn something and leverage that new education in any way you deem appropriate. With that being said, guys, I want to thank you for listening in today's episode. This crisis is still ongoing. We might see a lot of developments coming up and we probably will in the next couple of days, weeks and months. Stay tuned. Keep on reading the news. It's very important to see what's going to be happening in the next couple of weeks and months to come. I'll see you guys on the next one.